So in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, I invite you to open your Bibles if you happen to bring one and find Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, otherwise the words will appear on the screen. As we talked today about, and for the next few weeks, unpacking the Christian life. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. It says, let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written... Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, originally I had packaged this all together in one sermon, and then I realized if I did that, we'd be here till about 4 o'clock this afternoon. So instead, we're going to take this chunk by chunk, and I have no other way of getting around it. So we'll just be looking at the first couple of verses. Let your love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Let your your love one another, rather, with brotherly affection, and outdo one another in showing honor. Those of us men who were at the last Engage Men's Retreat the other day, we were blessed by the ministry of Paul Sabino, who argued that a Christ-honoring marriage is one of the best apologetics we can give to the world of the gospel. And he, he justifiably argued that from Ephesians 5, where at the very end, The Apostle Paul, after talking extensively about marriage and the relationship between the husband and the wife, the wife submitting to the husband, the husband loving the wife, both submitting to one another, and yada, yada, at the very end he says, hey, I'm showing you a mystery. The reason I'm telling you about this is I'm talking about Christ and his church, which Paul rightly brought out, seemed a little bit incongruent, but it wasn't incongruent because that's what God is saying. A Christ-honoring marriage is a great apologetic to a world that needs to see Jesus. Well, this section, which I just read, Romans 12, verses 9 through 21, is the gospel sort of unpacked. 
It is the true evidence that Jesus is not just Savior, but he is Lord of one's life. It is an apologetic, an argument for the faith, if you please, to those who observe our lives as professed believers. In a series of messages I preached here at Sailorville about 15 years ago, uh, I spent many weeks in the book of Ephesians. And I'm, I'm talking about just the first chapter. And in that chapter, you have out of salvation coming election and predestination and adoption and redemption and forgiveness and the fact that we have an inheritance and the Holy Spirit's sealing ministry and the guarantee of our faith. And there is no way, there is no way, there is no way I could preach that in one message. So in front, some of you will remember I had a great big box here, great big silver box, and it said salvation across it. You remember that? And every week I'd reach into the box and I'd pull out the next word. And I would put, a do, you know, election here. I would put predestination here. I would put adoption here. I would come over to this side. I would put redemption here. I would come out of the box and another message and I would put forgiveness here. And by the time we were done with that series, this entire platform had a different gift. But the point was that every single gift came out of the same box. God's salvation, so to speak. That came to my mind as I read and began my contemplations in, of this passage of Scripture. Because I, I imagined, if you please, a cutout Christian here, if you would. Just sort of imagine, you know, a cutout of a, of a man uh, who is a, our, he's our Christian here, okay? And out of him, over the next few weeks, I would pull out the stuff, so to speak, that makes him up as a Christian, if we could do that, verses 9 through 21 is what we would see. You say, well, no, I thought we would see Jesus. Exactly. Do you remember how Jesus responded to Philip in that epic John 14 passage when, you know, Jesus said, I'm going to my, you know, my father's house, lots of dwelling places. I'm going there. I'm going to make a place for you. I'm going to come again. I'm going to receive you to myself. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one who, you know, comes to the Father except through me. And Philip says, you know, hey, Jesus, we can really take care of all this confusion if you just show us the Father. It'll be all good. And Jesus said, remember what he said? Philip, how long have you been hanging with me here? If you've seen me, what? You've seen the Father. So what was Philip supposed to think? Well, I get it now. Father God looks exactly like you, physically. That's not what he meant. That's not what he meant. He meant that he embodied the very, not just the personality, but the very characteristic, the very impression of God himself. And in fact, that's exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. It says that Jesus is the exact impression of the Father. And here it is, laid out for the Christian. So, the idea is likewise, the more you and I who claim to know Jesus as their Savior look like this passage of Scripture, the more we look like Jesus. 
a critic, A.L. Huxley, said of this passage, it doesn't, make, it doesn't take much of a man to be a Christian. It just takes all of him, unquote. John MacArthur writes, The Christian life is the consummate way of living. It is a lifestyle that encompasses every facet of our lives. When Jesus said that we must come through a narrow gate to, he- to enter heaven, this is precisely what he meant. Christian living is very defined. And here it is. It's defined right here with these character traits. And we're going to try to take the stuffings out of this guy, this imaginative guide we ha- guy we have here over the next few weeks. The great Presbyterian preacher Donald Gray Barnhouse said, True love must leave the stage and walk the paths of real life. That's true of pastors. That's true of every Christian leader, people that are put on the stage, so to speak. We got to come down. We got to live life. We got to get into the trenches. We got to deal with people. Just like you. Just like you. One of my uh, favorite musicians of my youth was Bob Seger in the Silver Bullet Band, right? Any more Bob Seger fans here? Turn the page, right? <laughs> in that song, which he actually wrote while he was on the road, uh, he only wrote a couple of songs on the road, and that was one of them. And back, that's how it goes. Here I, you know, here I go, on the road again. You know, here I am, up on the stage. There I go, playing star again. Here I go, turn the page, move on. And in that song, he sort of, he sort of exposes his, the reality of life and his profession, which was so glamour, so, you know, glamorized, so, you know, here he is, he's a rock star. And if you listen to the words of the song, he, he talks about times where he's cheered and, and times where he's jeered. And in fact, uh, he had a he had tinnitus, and I know at least one friend of mine here has tinnitus. And what tinnitus is 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 a ringing in the ears, and it just doesn't ever go away. He he suffered from tinnitus, and he, he wrote that into the song. You know, later in the evening, as I lie awake in bed with the echoes of the amplifiers playing in my head. He was talking about his own issues, dealing with them. But he, then he would just conclude in a song, well, turn the page, move on. Hey, we can do more than just turn the page. We can turn upward, can we not? To the one who helps us get through the issues of life. But all of us have to come down from our stage. If I'm a parent, i got to come down. As a pastor, i got to come down. i got to meet with you. i got to meet with this world. i got to deal with people i got to deal with the situations in the world. And I've got to be able to look at things the way God does and, and love what is good and hate what is evil. As a parent, discipler, as a regular guy or girl claiming to love Jesus, these characteristics, these attributes under fire are what your children, your employees, your colleagues, your fellow workmates, your friends, 
are looking at. Moments, and I mean moments after becoming a widower. In the, in the wee mornings of that first dark and darkest day of my life, I opened up God's word to Psalm 69, where I was because I read Psalm 68 the day before. And I knew I had to hear from God as much as I had to pry it open. And I'll never forget how God met with me as I read that passage of Scripture where he starts off by saying, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I'm weary from my crying. And I, I can remember reading those verses thinking, Oh my goodness, he's so describing me. But I got to verse 6 and I read this. The psalmist says to God, let not those who trust in you become ashamed because of me. Let not those who hope in you become ashamed because of me. I remember stepping back from the kitchen counter and thinking, God, are you challenging me in the early moments of my bereavement? And he was. He was reminding me that there are going to be a lot of people in your unusual circumstance of trial that are going to be watching you. They're going, to, they're going to want to see if this grace stuff you've been preaching is really really works. If there's any stuffing in you that looks like me. Earlier in the book of Romans, Paul it slaps upside the head the Jewish readers who were claiming one thing and they were living another. Remember what he said in chapter 2 and verse 24? He said, the name of God is blasphemed amongst the Gentiles because of you. We have a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. If an outsider looking in was looking for just what a Christian should be like, should act like, and even act toward others? What kind of stuffing is in him? Under pressure? Both in the church and outside of the church? This is what he would see. He'd have to look no further than this passage of Scripture. And this, but this is sort of predicated, it's like a third tier. If you've been with us, and if you haven't been with us, let me remind you, the first 11 chapters of Romans is talking about God's great salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. And the writer here is assuming that you have a personal relationship with Jesus. So if you don't have a personal relationship with Jesus, this is where it begins. It begins by you humbling yourself, acknowledging your sin, believing that God became a man, that the man lived a perfect life, that the man died on the cross for your sins and took all of your sins to himself, and then he rose again from the dead. And you believe in him. You place your faith in him, and you're saved. That's the first tier. The second tier is in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So if you have really placed your faith in Jesus, then you embrace him for all of his lordship, and you... And Paul begs you, he says, I beg of you, brethren, by the mercies of God in your life that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. It's holy, it's acceptable to God. I mean, this is your reasonable service after all, right? And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. 
in order that you may prove it is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. So that is the assumption here. You've been there, you've done that, and you're living it on a daily basis. And, and this here is the unpacking of all of that. So, he says, let love be genuine. In fact, it's a negative word. It means not, non-hypocritical. Again, MacArthur said, there's probably no sin worse than hypocrisy because that sin is the ugliest sin of all because it feigns affection when it is actually filled with hate. No vice is more destructive than hypocrisy. Of course, the ultimate example of this is Judas, right? Here's the guy who feigns love of Jesus, but in reality, he hates him. On the other hand, no virtue is more wonderful than love. Look at, let your love be without hypocrisy. So you've got these polar opposites in one short little sentence here. Commentator John Murray said, If love is the sum of virtue and hypocrisy the epitome of vice, what a contradiction to bring these together, unquote. The word, as I said, is negative. means not hypocritical, unalloyed, unmixed. A church that has not made the gospel the centerpiece of its mission is a hypocritical church. It is putting on a face that does not belong to them. I warned recently a church planting pastor, not in our network, who had just received an enormous windfall from a formerly strong church of dozens and dozens of its members, former members now. And I warned him that those very people that he's rejoicing in could be the death of his ministry. If he's not careful. I was in Colorado a few years ago doing a conference. And I walked up and just sort of getting the lay of the land and kind of feeling the, the, the stage. And this old, very old, I felt like I was walking back 200 years in this church. And just the way it looked, very rustic. And <clears throat> the pastor of the church walked up to me. I didn't know he was coming because I had walked up to the, to the baptismal and I don't even know why. I just sort of looked, and I just, I, I, but I couldn't help but look in. I mean, I was struck by the fact that it, there was a couch at the bottom of the baptismal. That seemed like a strange place for a couch. And I was looking in there, and I just was sort of incredulous, you know. And just then, here comes the pastor. And he kind of leans up against the baptismal. He looks down at the obvious. And he looks at me, and I'm, this is exactly how he said it. I'll bet the waters of Sailorville Church are stirred all the time, aren't they? And I looked at him, I thought, you risky rat. You disingenuous. I didn't say the rest. I mean, I looked at him, I said, well, apparently more than these. I mean, here's, and here's the deal. He goes, well, that's why we're here. We're trying to get you to help us to win people to Jesus. Listen, this guy was not preaching the gospel. He wasn't. I don't care if he told me he believed in it. He wasn't living it. 
There is some kind of a facade there. Now, let me, let me tell you something. This is what happens. He, he did do a really good job of substituting the gospel. Because throughout his church were rooms that depicted different eras of Christendom. And he was very proud. He actually took me for a tour of his rooms. And here is the Puritan era. And uh, here is, and we study here. And it had the wood and had pulpits. From, it was a, it, I felt like I was in a museum because I was in a museum. And I was angry. But I, my, I tried not to direct my anger at him. I was angry at what happens, how powerful and how deceptive our enemy is to get us to take one thing and just focus on another thing. Is it, in, is it wrong to focus on the Puritan era? Please go like this. You can study it. You can appreciate it. You can glean from it. But it doesn't become the ammo of your church for crying out loud. The other day, I was in chapel preaching in a Bible college and seminary and hundreds of students, and it was a wonderful time, and I preached something along these lines, talked, gave that story I just shared. And a young lady walked up to me, and uh, her eyes were starting to well up a little bit, and she said, uh, she said you know, she said, um, so what do you do? I'm, I'm in a church like you described. Not that same church, but something like it. And what do I do? I mean... It's dying, and the, the pastor doesn't preach the gospel. He does, but nobody ever gets saved. And I can't remember, for years I can't remember anybody getting baptized, having just been saved. And, and um, you know, I, I, my heart went out to this young lady, and I said, well, you can make an appeal. Make an appeal to your pastor. Uh, lovingly tell him how you were challenged here. And suddenly the, the eyes rolling up just exploded. Her, she just started to weep, and she said, the pastor is my dad. Let your love be unhypocritical. That's a general statement. It's not just talking about the church. It's talking about the Christian guy here we have depicted. It's talking about you. It's talking about me. When we reach in there and I pull out the love that's in you, what kind of love is it? Is it alloyed? Is it hypocritical? Are you saying one thing and doing another? Is there a life that looks has some semblance of Jesus in it? Listen, if the core of every sin is pride, the cover of every sin is hypocrisy. And that's the reason why the writer of Proverbs said, said, like a thorn in the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. The, the, the idea there is, it's not that you're not speaking truth, but you're not living it out. A thorn in the hand of a drunkard, wouldn't ha- he wouldn't feel it, right? Because he's drunk. He's, he's been drunken by the influence of alcohol. And this depicts people who speak truth, parents who speak truth, Christians who speak truth, but live something different. You're, you might have... you. You might have what you consider a thorn, but it has no impact on the person because your life isn't matching up there. He says the same thing. He sort of gets redundant. He, he, he says it's the same thing as, a, as the, the legs of a lame man hanging down is a proverb in the mouth of a fool.
We, our love must be without hypocrisy. God hates hypocrisy. And we must learn to love what God loves and hate what he hates. Vance Havner was right. He said, you can't love flowers unless you hate weeds. The word abhor means to hate. It is present imperative. It means hate it and keep on hating. Now, someone has said that our only security against sin is to be shocked by it. I agree with that. Our only security against sin is to be shocked by it. So let me ask you, are you aware of what is happening right now in Iraq and northern Syria? Are you aware? Where ISIS, until recently, until you know, the airstrikes came in, Absolute free reign in every single city, and they are swallowing them up by the dozens with their vice grip of terror on the inhabitants of every city and particularly on the believers in Jesus. Perhaps you're aware, but you choose not to think about it. I mean, after all, I mean, I mean it doesn't really affect me. It doesn't change my life. It seems to me that we have a short memory. Do you remember Nazi Germany and the stories around the, the people who lived near Auschwitz and others? They kind of knew what was going on, but the smell in the air wasn't good, and yet, I mean, well, not really impacted me. Yet we are commanded to be concerned about our brothers and sisters in chains. Hebrews 13 and verse 3 says this, Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are in the body. And we have been talking about this. We are in the body of Christ. It isn't just Sailorville Church. It's everyone who loves Jesus. We're a part of this thing. And if you were at the men's retreat, Many of you came early and we prayed our hearts out for Pastor Saeed in Iraq, whose his life is in the balance right now because of his Christian witness. And the voice of the martyrs who put out a magazine, create videos, produce books, have produced a video and they have given us permission to share this before it goes public. And here it is. We were praying for revival, believing God would do a big work in Syria. Then the war came. Now the terrorists are attacking Christian homes, churches, and even our children. Their goal is to empty Syria of its Christians. We hate the spirit of Islam that is destroying our country but we love our Muslim neighbors. They come to us and say, in the name of our God, terrorists rape and kill. Where is God? We tell them about Jesus, and many are coming to know him. 
Still others say we are like living in hell. One day, while I was praying, I asked God what he would have me do to be his witness. But he only asked me, will you give me your life? As I prayed, I understood he wanted all of me. And I said yes. If the time came, I was willing to die for Jesus. The next day, while I was praying, I asked God again what he would have me do. This time, he asked me, Are you willing to give me your husband's life? It is not easy to be ready to die. My husband and I prayed about this together. We said yes to God. The third day was the most difficult. On this day, God asked me if I was willing to give up my children's lives. The terrorists know who we are and that we share Jesus with Muslims. It is not safe for our family. My husband and I prayed and fasted, and together we agreed. God gave us our precious children. He has the freedom to take them back. When we agreed to put our children on the altar, I knew I had to tell them the truth. I told them that it was possible that men with swords may come through our door, men who didn't know Jesus. They may say bad things to us and try to force us to convert to Islam. But no matter what they say, we should not answer them. We should only tell them that Jesus loves them and that we forgive them. I told them that we might see some blood and have some pain, but it would only be for a little while. <laughs> that we should just close our eyes. And when we open them, we will be with Jesus. Am I a good mother? Do you have to tell my children such things? I also told them that as long as God wants us to be safe, we will be safe, that He is in control. Even during the bloodshed, during the killing, He is carrying our future. This is what it means to be a Christian in Syria.
Will you pray with me? Our Father, we know that these things are true and they're a reality. They're no longer a possibility. And while they're not happening under our noses, they're happening. And our precious brothers and sisters and their children who are coming to know and love Jesus are dying for their faith in Jesus. And God, we've heard that the children whose lives are being particularly marked out by these terrorists are not denying their little faith, which is much bigger than most of ours. We pray for our brothers and our sisters in Iraq and Syria. And indeed, Lord, wherever they are being persecuted, be it in Indonesia or the Sudan, in Egypt, or wherever, we hold them up before you and pray that they would be faithful unto death, that they might gain that crown of life. I pray, God, you'd forgive us for our lethargy and that we would understand that indeed our only security against sin is to be shocked by it. And we recognize, God, that even your prophet of old said, do we not even blush anymore over our sins? And we see it raining in different areas. Are we concerned? Forgive me, God. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a time, there was a time in the nation of Israel when uh, things were so bad and the passion for truth and hatred for sin was so low that a Levite priest who was on a trek with his concubine Through a series of circumstances, and you can read it for yourself in Judges 19. In fact, as you read Judges 19, you keep asking yourself, is this Genesis 19? Because it sure looks like it. And this dreadfully sinful city eventually got the concubine of the Levite priest and raped her to death. It's in the Bible. The Levite comes up in the morning, his concubine is dead at the doorstep. But he has a dilemma on his hands. The nation of Israel doesn't really, they're not shocked by sin anymore. It doesn't really, it doesn't see, I mean, just this information wouldn't be enough. So he takes the concubine and cuts her into 12 pieces. I know, you read it and you go, you've got to be kidding me, right? No, he cuts his dead concubine into 12 pieces and sends the parts to the 12 tribes in Israel. That got their attention. 
Mission accomplished. And action was taken. Our text says that the stuffing of this image of a Christian is to hate hypocrisy and abhor what is evil. God says, you who love the Lord, Psalm 97 verse 10, hate evil. And in Proverbs chapter 6, it says, there are six things that God hates. Seven are an abomination to him. A proud look, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked imagination, feet that are swift to running to do evil, a false witness who sows discord, who speaks lies, and he who sows discord amongst the brethren. These things God hates. And until we hate them, nothing will be done. I've been criticized from time to time because I will, from time to time, attack a ministry where false doctrine is is being preached. False doctrine damns souls. The Bible says in Psalm 119, through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. My, listen, listen carefully what I'm going to say to you. My love for the truth will come with a corresponding hatred for evil. In other words, if my love for the truth is minimized, if my love for good and truth is minimized, my corresponding hatred for that which is evil will also be minimized. And Contrawise is also true. If my love for the truth and that which is good is high, is maximized, my hatred for evil will equally be maximized. I'm on high alert to both evil and good. That's why we're told in Psalm 45 that God loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Why? Because it's the maximum that holiness can have by way of an attitude toward either one. Should I hate the teaching of Islam? Yes! But you heard it in the film. But we love our Muslim brothers. We love our Muslim neighbors. And by the way, by the thousands. I mean, I just made that word up. I mean, they're coming to Christ. Left and right, we're not told by the media, but Muslims by the, th- by the thousands upon thousands are coming to Jesus. Indeed, praise God. If it's false doctrine, you hate it. We hate the teaching of Mormonism. We hate the teaching of Islam. We hate the teaching of Jehovah's Witnesses. We hate false doctrine. We hate false gospels. We hate evil. Without being hateful. Imagine that. And we hate a lifestyle that claims to know Jesus but lives immorally and confuses people? 
confuses the seeker. I know that no one seeks after God, but God creates seekers. And woe unto us if we portray as Christians some bizarre form of Christianity. He says, hate what is evil, hold fast what is good. I can't believe my time is up. I'm done. It means to cling, hold fast. I'll come back to the rest of this later. Listen, I'll finish it up here. Let your love be real. Examine yourself. Is it real? Is it alloyed? Is it mixed? Is it hypocritical? Or is it real? It's not perfect. Nobody's love is perfect. And all of us can be hypocritical from time to time. And when we are, we confess that. Amen? But then we don't return to hypocrisy. That's the idea here. So let our love be real. Let your hatred be targeted. Okay? Be, be targeted. We were at the men's retreat the other day, and, and it looked, more guys were shooting guns than playing football. Amen. <laughs> Packing? Anyway. Uh, and they're shooting at 1 to 2 o'clock in the morning. They're still shooting. It's... Last I checked, it's really dark at 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. And I said, I said, what are you shooting at? One of them says, well, there's a target out there, but not very many people were hitting it. I said, gee, I can imagine. God wants me to hate. But he wants my hatred to be targeted. Not toward the individual. We should pity the individual. Some of you struggle with this. I, I talked to a young lady who came up to me after I preached the other day, and she said, I hate my dad. I said, why do you hate him? What she told me was a grotesque form of hypocrisy. And it was pretty clear to me, your dad must not be a Christian. I said, you need, honey, you need to pity your father. Pity him. He's lost. He's a lost man. Hate, yes. Hate what has come out of The sin is a hateful thing. And we, we struggle with that, you know. Attacking the person and the problem. We just can't differentiate that. But we must. That's what makes us Christian. That's what makes this, this Christian, this form up here, look like Jesus. The ability to hate that which God hates and love that which God's, God loves. And we must love mankind. All mankind. ISIS terrorists, yeah, we got to love them. Even if we hate what they believe, and what they do. Some of you would say, I'm not, it's not the ISIS terrorist on the other side of the world. It's my daughter. It's my son. It's my wife, or my ex-wife, or my husband, or my ex-husband. It's my friend, or my ex-friend. I can't seem to differentiate the two. You must, because that, is what Christian is all about. Some of you can't make that differentiation because you don't know Jesus. I said that at the beginning. Here is Jesus who hated evil but entered into a society of evil just for you, just for me. And if you want your sins forgiven and all of that hatred and bitterness that you are just and dwelt with, and it's ruining your life. 
then come to the one who took all of your hatred. He took all of your bitterness. He took all of that anger, all of that spitefulness upon himself and died for you and rose again for you. And if you'll love him back for his love for you by trusting him, you will be saved. Father, thank you so much for this time that we could be together in song, in your word. Help us, oh God, to understand this unpacking of the gospel in our lives. And at the very core of it, Lord, a love for the one who loved us that is not hypocritical with the ability, because you've given us the power to do so, to hate what you hate and love what you love. (laughs) And we know you love the world, Lord. And you don't have to prove your love anymore. You've proven it in Jesus. And I pray for those who've never trusted him. If that would be you, and you would say, yeah, all my life I've heard these things, but I've never trusted him. Maybe you could be like Chris who trusted Jesus just a few weeks ago or like Brady who trusted Jesus just the other day and say, I I humble myself before you, God, and I receive Jesus. May the rest of us who know him strive to be those under your authority, possessing your power to look more and more like Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.